If you have your Bibles nearby, uh, please flick to John chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, the passage that Matt's going to preach to us on tonight. So chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon and Salim, near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he, he has seen and heard but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Wonderful to be with you in this way. And yeah, it's great to be part of this church and to know we're doing this together. And uh, even though we are separated this way, as I was saying before, we are still uh, united. And that is a really wonderful encouragement. I hope you you hold on to that as we go through this period together. We are going to approach God's Word, uh, continuing in this series in life and looking at the Gospel of John. Uh, Please do have your Bible with you and open as we go through it together. Before we do, though... uh, I want to pray, so please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us and that by your spirit we have capacity to understand it. I pray for our brothers and sisters across the screen that you help us to engage with your word, that Holy Spirit, you do your work in us. I pray that my words are to your glory and that we point to Jesus and we know what it means to live as one of his followers. In Jesus' name, amen. So in lockdown, uh, I don't know about you, I imagine you've been watching a a few movies and uh, our kids, really, whether it's lockdown or not, love to watch some movies. And one that's come up for us recently is Peter Pan. Very nostalgic for me, Uh, but there's a a song in there, and since it's been on, kind of running in my head uh, intermittently. Leader, the leader, the leader, you know, following the leader, wherever he may go. And it's rupturous applause in here for that rendition. But uh, anyway, it's English sequential to the story as such, but it's, it establishes that John, who's the guy in front there, has become like the leader of the Lost Boys, and the Lost Boys are kind of just, just following him wherever he goes, following in his, in his steps. And in our passage tonight, that idea, it kind of pops up, kind of rears its head, and we're going to explore what it looks like to 
to follow after of leaders. Now, it's a bit strange here because um, someone has come back onto the scene. That our long lost on uh, has come back. It seemed like he'd kind of exited stage left. Wait, that's my left. Stage left, uh, all the way back in chapter one. Uh, and because in there he was saying, like, look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of, of the world. And some of his disciples who were following after John then started following after Jesus. And they were calling other people to himself and saying, come, come follow Jesus. Come and see what he's about. And then you and I, as readers of John's gospel, have kind of been like that. We've been people who are coming and seeing who Jesus is and inviting others to come and see who he is. But John has now made his way back. And it seems a bit strange, but the author has uh, inserted him in here and he kind of gives like a bit of a, a, bit of a farewell speech as, in a way. And the passage in some way summarizes a lot of what's been important in these first three sections. And the way we're going to approach it tonight, through the lens of three main characters uh, in this story. John the Baptist, his disciples, which is obviously not one character, but a few, but his disciples, and then Jesus. And as I was saying before, explore it through the lens of the nature of leadership and Christian ministry and who the person of Jesus is. So yes, please, as I was saying before, have your Bible with you. We're going to charge through together. Now, it does start a little bit strange, kind of a bit out out of nowhere. It said, after this, Jesus and his disciples, they went into the Judean countryside uh, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John, so this is John the Baptist, was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people were coming and being baptized. Now, it is a little bit weird. It's like, what's going on here? Um, First, like two of our main characters that we're going to explore have have popped up, John and Jesus. And they're both baptizing. Now, for John the Baptist, that's not weird. It's in his name. Of course, he's going to be baptizing. But Jesus, what's going on there? Why is he baptizing? Now, if you think back to chapter 1, maybe you're like, oh, is this like the baptism of the Holy Spirit going on here? Is that starting to happen? Now, it's not. <laughs> we know that because, well, if you've read the whole Gospel of John, it doesn't happen at the very end. Acts, that's when it, when it begins, when the Holy Spirit comes. Also, if you flick down in your Bible and you look at chapter 4, verse 2, after the whole story, it says, uh, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So we know that, having read it, but the characters in the story, they don't know that, it seems. And it's like the author wants to hold that off for the moment. Because what this little section is doing is setting up what's going to be the conversation uh, that's going to follow and how John's disciples uh, are going to react. Because what is it with Jesus and John baptizing? Is it good? Is it bad? Are they competing? Like, what's going on here? So then we read on from verse 25. An argument developed between John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. So our third character now, the John's disciples, they're on the scene and this other like random guy, it seems, a, a certain Jew. Um, our author, John, doesn't give us any indication of who he is. In a sense, it's irrelevant. But he gets in a bit of a tiff. Uh, he gets in a bit of a theological argument, it seems, with John's disciples. The argument is over ceremonial washing. You know, like, how should you baptize? How should you become clean before God? 
But as you read on, or as we just had it read there, sorry, we realize that is not really the issue, is it? Somewhere in that conversation, the topic of Jesus' baptism has come up. And the fact that he and his, he, along with his disciples, are baptizing lots of people. He's getting a big following. People are starting to go to him. Maybe the, the following around John the Baptist is getting smaller. And what's going on here, it's kind of like what's happening in the, uh, for the, John's disciples. What's happening is it's kind of like the movie Inside Out. And you know in that movie, um, the character disgust or envy comes and like imagine she like takes over the the controls and is like oh no this is I'm, I'm envious because the disciples are feeling threatened by jesus in verse 26 it's kind of like they're saying like john john like mate you got to do something about this jesus is getting a big following like this is your gig mate you were the baptist what's going on what's it mean for us what's going to be To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am the one that's just sent ahead of him. He's basically saying, Calm your farm. That's not what, this is what is meant to happen. Because John intimately knows how. He's the one who prepares the way for Jesus, and then he gets out of the way. He knows uh, who he is. And I think that line there in verse 27, it's just it's such a beautifully impactful line where he says, a person can receive only what is given from them from heaven. He knows his gifts, he knows his role, and he's doing it faithfully because he knows it comes from God. It's a wonderful expression of humility and allegiance to God's mission. He's not discontent with God's choices. He knows these are God's choices, what he is to do, the way that he has been gifted. He knows his role uh, that he's been given to play out in history. And he goes about doing it faithfully and not taking pride or thinking himself better than others. Now you and I, like consciously, subconsciously, we can easily fall into the trap of, of comparing ourselves and like ranking each other based on our gifts or our ability in ministry or our role in ministry, whatever it may be. We may get discontent with whatever God has given us. But John's example and his words of godly wisdom point that provision and perfect in what he gives his people for his good, the growth of his church. And the response is humility and faithfulness. Now the second part that we see about John here made explicit in verse 28 and we explored it a lot uh, back in chapter 1. John is pointing to Jesus. In all things he does, he can point towards Jesus. So whether you're a John the Baptist, you're an apostle, as you read about in God's word here, you're a pastor, you're a faithful, godly leader in, in the local church, a missionary overseas, you're, just, you're faithful in whatever it may be, our role is to point towards Jesus. We have the task of our ministry, like kids' ministry, like Amelia was talking about, or, or being here doing uh, the tech team staff. We have tasks to do. But our purpose is to point towards Jesus. And now at Baptist Church, we wrap that up around the idea of seeing lives transformed through Jesus to the glory of God. For John, though, it is more than just a task, isn't it? He has that purpose. But then he gives like this really cool little mini illustration parable. He says, uh, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. 
the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. John, he like says, I'm a bit like a, a groomsman or like a bridesmaid at a wedding. Like one who's just like so overwhelmed at the joy that it is when their friend is getting married. And because John knows them and he knows his role, he's, he's full of joy. He's invited, he participates, he experiences the joy of being in that wedding. Like you know that you've been to weddings perhaps and the best man makes it all about himself. That wasn't my wedding, by the way, but you know the weddings. And it feels awkward. It's like, no, 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 it's about, it's about the bride and groom. We just get to celebrate with what's going on here. It's the same as in Christian ministry. We don't make it about ourselves. We always make it about Jesus and his kingdom, his values, his ethic. But we are very much part of it. We're God in his wisdom, in, in his great grace, allows us to partner with him. And in partnering with him, he allows us then to have the joy that comes from seeing his kingdom grow, of seeing his name be made great. It is such a joy. If you heard Amelia's little video there, she was speaking about some of the joys that come from seeing kids kind of understand God and his work. Serving or you've been sharing about God with other people and, and you see them kind of get it or you're able to participate in some acts of like social justice or something like that and you see God's kingdom like bear fruit in the world. There's such joy for that. I've had the privilege of discipling a lot of young guys for uh, some of them for years now. And some of my greatest joys in ministry is just seeing them grow into likeness of Christ. Seeing them like make mistakes and then come to back to God, learn from them, seeing them serve in ministry. Now I get to partner with them, but my joy is the fact that they're growing in Christ. And that's what all of us are invited into, the fact that we can participate in God's mission to this world and it brings great joy. That's what John was about. He prepared the way he knew was ultimately about Jesus, but he got to participate in that. And that's what he says to his disciples. A bit grumpy, a bit envious they may be. But he says, I know my role and my joy is now complete. And then he, gets, he gives perhaps one of the most impactful verses. He must become I must become less. If anything, like that is Christian ministry at its core. Humble Christian ministry. It sums up the nature of John's ministry and it kind of acts a bit like an archetype for us. Jesus rises in prominence. And John becomes less. Jesus is not John. Like in the context of the gospel, in the context of the whole biblical story, John was preparing the way. He's done it. He's the warm-up warm act. He's now leaving. There is no envy. There is no jealousy. There is no mistaken sense of pride as people start thinking of him less. There is no desperation for him to cling to influence. There's no crisis of identity when his ministry fades. It's humble service, joyful for the work that Jesus and the person that he is. And in that way, it's an archetype for us of what it looks like to participate and, and be a leader in Christian ministry. We're all leaders in all sorts of ways, shapes, and forms. And we want to be people that, that point towards Jesus, who act with humility and experience and have the joy that is offered to us. 
And I think it really puts up a mirror to us when we look at the character of John in this way. It asks us, like, well, in our ministry, how is it that we are pointing to Jesus? Are we? Are we directing people towards him, making sure they're not dependent on us or thinking how great we are? Yeah, sure, celebrating what, what we can contribute. That's okay. Encourage one another. Please encourage one another. But it's about Jesus. It's about him and his kingdom and his church. And being humble, like continuing to identify, confess your pride, confess in the ways that you're not being humble. Ask the Holy Spirit to continue to change us, to form us into likeness of Christ. And then participating in the joy. Like Christian ministry, it's hard work, it's labor. Paul, a lot in his, in his letters is like, yeah, sometimes it's like childbirth it seems to him. It's like a nursing mother. He uses these vivid images to say that it's hard work. But there's plenty of joy. And if you're not experiencing joy, maybe that's because you're not making about Jesus. Might not be. There's lots of other things that can contribute, but you can ask yourself that question. Because you and I need to consistently assess in our leadership through prayer and the help of others to ensure it is about Jesus and not us. But what about when we are the followers? We've seen and learned a bit about John, about the nature of leadership. But what is it we learn from John's disciples about the nature of following? Because in this passage, and what I was doing the first little while investigating it, is it's so easy to want to critique our leaders. It's easy to want to like point the finger uh, like at yourself and your leadership or at other people. And like, man, that's not quite Christ-like. That's not what we're called to. But it has a lot to say about what it means to follow our human leaders. Because John's response is in direct response to his disciples who are following him. Now, obviously, I'm a leader in this church, but I'm also a follower of lots of people. And us are followers. And I think because this passage pushes us that way, it's worth pressing into for a moment. If you remember, I was making the point that the disciples were envious and they were self-centered. John's disciples, this is. And, and to kind of broaden that out a bit further, these disciples are representative of what it means to, a, to follow a human leader above Jesus. So following a human leader above or at the expense of Jesus. Because you see, these disciples, they, they generally have a good and a, and a great God, the leader. Like Jesus gives him a great rap in, in, in Matthew. He's humble, as we've seen. He's pointing to Jesus, seemingly executing his ministry well. However, for the disciples, the way they're following him, it means that they're kind of elevating him above what he is even claiming to be elevated towards. They're more concerned about his personality and what he brings to them in his ministry the influence they can have. They're making John their ministry hero. He was threatened. They felt threatened and got envious. Now we can be subtly, sometimes just compelled uh, to start following others whose role it is to point us to Jesus. They should be pointing us to Jesus, but sometimes we can place them in a position where they're above. pastor or youth group leader, some social media personality, be like, man, whatever that woman or guy says, man, I'm, I'm on board for that. We can end up following their ideas, sometimes at the expense of God's ideas, or just assume whatever they say is God's ideas just because we read it on their feed. We can follow their interpretation of Scripture rather than Scripture itself. We can follow their way of expressing God's Word rather than 
God's word actually says to us. Now, that's not to say these figures uh, and these people aren't helpful. Uh, They can be incredibly helpful in pointing us to Jesus, uh, and, and we need them. But they should never take the place of Jesus himself. And recently I've been listening to a a podcast uh, which is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Now, it's an investigative journalism uh, podcast uh, which is about a a church in the US called Mars Hill and uh, its leader named Mark Driscoll. Now, it's a fascinating listen. It's insightful. It's quite confronting. Uh, It's a bit abrasive at times and it explores the dynamics of church and and leadership um, some of the great things that happened in that church and explores the reasons why it ended and ended quite abruptly and tragically. And as an aside, like, I would have loved to kind of package it up, but I don't think I could have done it in a helpful, faithful, neat way, way that was loving. But I think if you're interested, that would be a good place to go in order to explore some of this dynamic. Like, amongst lots of things, it stops us kind of jumping to simplistic excuses or reasons about toxic churches or leaders and it really dives deeper uh, into the far more nuanced insights of, of power and culture and the stories which we tell ourselves and others. Because we need to be careful in who we follow and how we follow them. Because indirectly in this passage, it is also it is putting up a mirror in our face and asking who are we truly following and who are we truly seeking after. Is it leading us to Jesus? Is it Jesus or is it a human leader? I think it's helpful and indeed necessary that we keep checking ourselves. Who are we following? How are we following them? We all need human leaders. They're necessary. God in his wisdom said, you know, the pastors and the teachers and we need people to lead. They're good. It's a wonderful thing. But they are not ultimate. I'm certainly nowhere near ultimate. And the way we celebrate them and depend on them, we always must make sure that it's always subordinate to Jesus and it never takes his place. But this passage, it doesn't end with human leaders and their followers. It turns to Jesus. And I think in reflecting on this passage this week, it's just a beautiful, quite deep way, uh, but beautiful in the sense of how it, it lands on Jesus. Because as one of the leaders of this church, someone who is definitely learning, but even if I'm 80 years old, like obviously myself and the partial team, we don't want to make mistakes, we want to be faithful. But at times we will fail. We will let you down. We won't be as empathetic as we could be. We won't, we'll be a bit prideful at times. And obviously we don't want to be those things. We want to continue to be faithful. But we know we're not perfect. But Jesus is, and he won't let us down in that way. He's the only true, the only infallible leader. Jesus is the only one you and I can confidently put our trust in and confidently rely on. That's what John and this passage, the breadth of Scripture is pointing to. So it's, it's necessary and really helpful when we explore more of who Jesus is. So if you have a look from verse 31, it says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever accepted it has testified that God is truthful. Now here it's 
explicitly talking about Jesus in all those things. And there's a lot of deep, what you might call Christology, understanding of who Jesus is that's going on. And in some sense, you can go to Bible college or uh, dig into it more and there's such depth in who Jesus is. But one thing that's exceptionally clear is that Jesus is above all. He comes from heaven. Now that might seem a bit obvious. When Jesus is the Son of God, of course he's from heaven. But he's making a very substantial point that Jesus is superior and literally from out of this world. Now by Jesus coming out of this world, he therefore brings things that are not from here. They cannot be found, they cannot be known outside of him. Like no matter how individually or as a society we advance, like even take it 2,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now. Imagine we've you know, sorted out the, the problems, but we've got super technology advanced or whatever it may be. Even at that point, we cannot find or know or have revealed to us the things that Jesus can bring because they're literally outside of this world. To kind of give it a, a little bit of an illustration, I went to Peru many years ago, uh, which was a, a wonderful blessing. But one thing they have in Peru, which we don't have here in Australia, I couldn't know, is very high mountains. And when you go up in really high mountains, there's not much oxygen. And you get this thing called altitude sickness. And that kind of sickness, because you don't have enough oxygen, you cannot experience it in Australia. There's no way for you to know what that would be like or know what it is, unless you'd been in such a place. It's from outside our experience. Now, obviously, that is something from within the world. Jesus is like from outside this universe, and he brings something from outside to us. Now, we are told in our society and in our culture that humanity can, can have all these achievements and abilities, that humanity is like the pinnacle of the universe, that we have unlimited potential, like that all knowledge, all joy, all experiences are attainable to us. But by Jesus being like outside of this world, coming to us, he's directly challenging that cultural assumption that we have. Because Jesus brings truth and wisdom and experience and revelation of God that is not possible without him unless God sent him. We cannot know God. We cannot experience all truth and we cannot experience or know life to the full without Jesus. He is the only way, the truth and the life. The passage then goes on, gives us more depth about who Jesus is. He says, For the one whom the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Now in that little section there, you might have like kind of glazed over it, but there's a bit of a hint to the Trinity in there. All the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit uh, at work there. But something that's especially clear and is important is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Because Jesus is an incredible man, and yet he's also God. But all the miraculous, the gracious, the kind of winsome stuff he does, his teaching, the things that we go, wow, Jesus is incredible. Those things in themselves is not what makes Jesus glorious. That in itself isn't what makes us go, wow, Jesus is superior to all things. It's the fact that Jesus is from the very heart of God. That Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in him. They are one. 
Jesus is fully God and fully man. That is what makes him superior. That's what makes him glorious. That he is God's son with the Father. And then it closes with whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. In some ways that whole section, but especially that last bit, summarizes a lot of what has been the arising key theme of those first three chapters. Jesus, he's sent by God, has the full love of the Father and demonstrates God's love and acts out the love of God for us. And our relationship with God is actually dependent on our relationship with Jesus. And that is said again over and over again. Because this verse succinctly and directly says there is just two options. There's just two options of belief or rejection. Genuine faith or defiant disobedience. There's no fence when it comes to our relationship with God. You think the fence is like an electric fence. It's barbed wire. You can't sit on it. One side or the other. Now, of course, in our life, like we can be seeking after Jesus, and that is a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. Like Keep going. This, um, this statement in itself, it's not like boxing everyone in a box and saying, well, you, believe at the, you don't believe at the moment. That's it forever. No, no, no. Jesus' hands of invitation, the Father's arms are always out open wide. But what it's saying is that everybody starts in a state of rejection. Everybody starts in a state of disobedience towards God and therefore under the wrath of God. That's what it means that God's wrath remains on them. It started there, and if you remain disobedient to Jesus, it stays there. It remains on you. God's wrath remains. Now, some of you, some of us, and what we, when we chat with our friends, might go, oh, that's a bit harsh. That's a bit rough that, that God's love remains on us. Why? Why would God do that? There's plenty of answers to that, but I think the best, maybe most briefest answer for this moment is that, we, that, is that God didn't put us in that position. We put ourselves in that position. God didn't. But God, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, made the way back for us to go from outside his love, under his wrath, to inside his love, in his family. He's not requiring us to earn our way back. It's by believing and having faith in Jesus. The fact that Jesus died on that cross, that he rose again for you and I. Making a, a way for our sin to be conquered, to be paid for. And that is why we can make our way out of the wrath of God into his love, into his family, because Jesus has earned it for us. And we, and we do that by repenting and believing in Jesus. I think when you take all these kind of things together, who Jesus is and yet the fact that he came to earth, it encourages us that even though he is from beyond, that he is from heaven and above all things, he's just incredibly intimate. Above and beyond, yet intimate with us. The Son of God became human exactly like you and me. To relate with us, to know who we are, to represent us, to feel the things that we've felt. And then we now have his spirit who dwells within us constantly so we can relate to the Father and the Son. And we have his words so we can know him and we can know each other. And we have this Christian community which God has established for us, who Christ is ahead so that we can experience some of the love of God and the blessing of community that God has created us for. 
And Jesus is with us. That's what it means because he's intimate. And the fact that he's been here, the fact that he's still lived with us by his spirit, he can empathize with our hurt. He can empathize with our suffering. And in fact, he can do something about it. Because when we feel alone and we're isolated and we're hurt, Jesus literally experienced those things too. On that cross, most intensely, of course, the night before he was betrayed. Even the way back to the beginning of his ministry where he went into 40 days of voluntary lockdown. You know, isolation of fasting in the wilderness. Like he didn't see anyone, go to the shops, anything like that. Jesus knows our experience. And we can find comfort and healing in the person of Jesus. So please continue to find your rest. Find your, your peace and your hope, your comfort in him. He is above all things. He is from beyond this world, yet he is intimately with us by his Holy Spirit. Friends, Jesus is the only true and infallible person we can ultimately follow. He is the true light. He is the true and only life. Our light and life. Our human leaders are good, they are necessary, but they're certainly not ultimate. And whenever we're in leadership positions, when you remember, as we saw with, with John, to just always be pointing towards Jesus, be humble, take the joy that God allows us to have in ministry, but to not to make it about us. And when we are following our human leaders, when we're, when we're in that uh, position, to constantly be assessing who and how we are following them. Are they pointing us to Christ? Are we making them above Christ? Or is Christ still ultimate? And then always pursue Jesus above all things. He's above and beyond, yet he draws intimately near us. And he loves us with a kind of love that only he can offer. Let me pray for us that we continue to do that and experience the love of God. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much that he came to this earth that you decided that your wrath wouldn't remain on us, but you would make a way. And that you sent Jesus to represent us, to, to live the life we couldn't, to then die on that cross, rise again in victory, to take our sin and pain, to conquer it, to pay for it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Lord, we pray for our human leaders, for the leaders of this church, the leaders that we, we have in our nation and across the world, that call on you, that we all, whatever position we find ourselves in, will continue to point to you. We will be humble and that we will have the joy that is before us. We pray that we know who Jesus is intimately and may we chase after you with all our heart. Amen.